We're going to go deeper into this whole conversation about identity. Yes, I have an anecdote. <laughs> oh. So over the weekend, this past weekend, I did a three-day training for EMDR therapy, which I talk about all the time because it's really amazing. Um, but part of the training was practicing it with a partner, and it was just really, really eye-opening. Um, because one of the unique things about EMDR is that while you're processing whatever you're processing, it doesn't necessarily have to be something hugely traumatic, you don't have to speak. So your brain can kind of just go off on these tangents and follow, you know, whatever, you know, trail it wants to follow. And it was just so interesting to me to see that the most um, innocent things got really deep so for example they with emdr therapy you usually have to pick a target so a thing that you're going to process and i chose i had a stomach ache <laughs> i had a stomach ache i get stomach aches because i'm an anxious person and sidebar but related the brain gut connection is why when we have uh anxiety we also get lots of stomach aches the vagus nerve was part of that because it travels from the cranial area down through your guts um, and then creates that sympathetic nervous system response. So shuts down digestion, stomach ache. So that was a legit emotional response to something. It was exhausting training, but I was able to, as a result of just processing having a stomach ache, go back and find pieces of my identity based completely around this. So I was able to trace having a stomach ache back to being a kid and then having, you know, like a cold or something like that and having my parents tell me, you need to go to school anyway. You need to just deal with it because life is hard and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of got really frustrated because I was like, oh my God, like, why did they do that? And then my brain kept processing, processing, processing. And then I landed on the fact that just simple things like that made up my whole identity of being like somebody that's resilient and perseveres to a fault sometimes. But it was just like a really bizarre thing to go stomach ache, process, 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 process. Oh, I've narrowed down my entire identity by doing this process of EMDR therapy in like an hour. And I was able to point out these things where like something happened when I was a kid and I'm like, oh, this is part of my identity now. So I was kind of like taught a little too much to like walk things off and be tough. Mm -hmm. And then as a result, I'm really tough and resilient. And what you just sort of described or what you just described um, reminds me of that idea that everything you need is already in you. Yes. Um, it's kind of a Buddhist thought. Like, for example, one one concept in Buddhism when it relates to enlightenment, for example, is that it's like enlightenment is in you. Mm -hmm. You're working on, like, peeling away the layers. Yes. To, you're not finding it. You're, I'm sorry. You're not creating it. You're finding it. Yes. You know, you're not becoming enlightened. You already are. You just need to... You gotta let it out. The layers, and so I think that that's important for um, for people to understand that. Truly, like I, 
talk about this a lot with, with um, my students. Like, um, people that are around you are reminding you of the things that you already know. Yeah. You know, like teachers, but also friends, um, and people that are, people that are close to you, um, are, are helping you to dig through yeah. all that stuff. You know, you've got the strength, you've got this, if you're willing to let it out. Right. There's an entire, so solution focused therapy is another type of therapy that specifically takes the perspective that no matter what you are dealing with right now, no matter what the problem is, you already have all of the abilities, the skills necessary to work through it. You just need somebody to kind of help you process and pull out what those things are. So not everybody has to go sit down with an EMDR therapist and process for an hour. You could be journaling. You could just be having conversations with friends and these things kind of pop up too, where you realize, oh, this one piece of my identity is something that's left over from, you know, something 20 years ago, you know, more, maybe like very early childhood. We're just kind of, we're constantly, our identity, we talked about this in the last one, is changing every minute. So, Absolutely. We're different now than we were when we, when we started this. When we started this episode, and every experience, and we're different now than we were when we recorded the episode before this. So each minute, the more we talk and the more we do, we're changing our identity. So sometimes I think about that, and then I feel like my head's gonna explode. But <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's also it's, really cool. <laughs> it's deep, but I and I think that on top of that, that also goes to my feeling of. So I'm gonna bring sort of my my nerd stuff but also my true belief system like i've said this before not only do i believe in everything but i 100 percent fully believe in the concept of the force or some something mm-hmm. like that where we all are connected we're all yeah. part of this fabric we're part of this um biosphere this ecosystem and i mean even you just talking about like the the gut biome and the brain and all of that working together and we have what is it more we have more um nerve endings or whatever it is like you're we've got serotonin receptors in our gut yeah your gut has more stuff yeah your gut has more of a brain than your brain does yeah there are theories now which we we don't have the technology to prove or disprove that even wonder if our consciousness is more in our guts than it is in our head. Well, but I, I mean, mean, it's all working together. So there's there's a lot to that too. Yeah. And and the and the fact that you know the concept of the force or whatever you want to call it, um, this connectivity that we have. I mean, there are so many ways that that it's just proven to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example. We've you and I have talked about a lot about being highly sensitive people, mm-hmm. right? I talk about it like every day on Facebook yeah, at I least mean, once, <laughs> and to the point where like I can feel when somebody walks in the room. Yeah, you know that the, empathetic response. Yeah, and knowing like I can feel. I'm also very empathetic to other people's energy. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, other people's moods can affect me. You know, so if you're kind of in a pooky mood, then. I got to actually work to not be in a pooky mood too. I can right. come into the room like having this great day, but if you're down here, I'm like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah. So that's hard. But but that's how like we're connected. Right. It's 
you talked about a few episodes ago your book of the week was the ta- was the Tao of Poo mm-hmm. and that gets into that a lot too the mm-hmm. idea that it's more normal for us to be really intuitive and really connected than it is not so the people that don't feel things with that kind of intensity are often distracted by other things mm-hmm. so it can be painful and it can be tough but it, it was kind it kind of alludes to that level of intuition and empathy is is really a kind of our human baseline or our experience is what our experience is if it's working correctly because if you think about even like in terms of survival if we weren't um where we are now in terms of technology and lifestyle and things like that thinking back you know to even ancient tribes if they did not have that ability to communicate or pick up on those signals in that way that could be the difference between living or dying and our brains are are wired to do that Mm -hmm. i mean we even have Oh, I was reading about the concept of mirror neurons, which that's something that's really a big part of this, too. So our brains want to mirror what the person in front of us is doing, which was at some point a survival thing, too. So if the person in front of us is, is, like you said, kind of like down here mood-wise, and you started up here, those those neurons are going to really pick up on whatever their their neurons are putting out. So I'm sure at some point it kept us alive, but it's still part of how we're wired now so that's where it gets tricky to navigate is when we don't maybe need to pick up the emotions of everyone around us to make sure that our tribe survives well and that's that's hard for me because i have i mean one of the ways that i describe myself is i have at times crippling empathy oh yes Um, i get embarrassed for people even if they're not embarrassed yeah (laughs) you know and i um i mean to the point where i have empathy for inanimate objects um when like when, if something doesn't get picked, like a, if an apple doesn't get picked because it's too ugly. <laughs> okay, that too. But so my specific examples are like several years ago, probably more than a decade now, um, Aaron um, had to give up his Ford Taurus that was like put together with duct tape and zip ties. And like I cried when I donated it to NPR. Um, when they came and picked it up, I'm like, it wasn't the car's fault that it was a piece of shit. Some human... <laughs> ruined this car and now we're donating it to whatever and then when we had to like home depot came and got our dishwasher and got us a new one i'm like there really was nothing wrong with the last one it just had a little bit of a leak you know like it couldn't do what it was supposed to do i'm like did you watch the brave little toaster oh no no i can't even with that i can't because you probably maybe shouldn't here's a story so here this is a complete sidebar but you brought it up so when i was a kid um, I wrote a story called The Flying Toaster. Oh! Okay? And... You're ahead of your tongue. I sent it to the Whetstone Library, and it was published in the Whetstone Library newsletter. Oh. And it was the same damn story as The Brave Little Toaster, like, five years before it came yeah, out. Yeah, I was going to say, time-wise. And I'm like, that was my story. <laughs> and because I was a kid, and it only got published at the library and never went anywhere else. That's wild. When I actually saw it as a movie, I'm like... Who talks about flying toasters and brave little toasters? Me! I did. So, anyway, okay. Oh, that so, would ruin my life. I was you very should, upset. You should talk about that more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still kind of bitter, clearly. I didn't know I was. So, crippling empathy 
is a challenge that I work with. Yeah, and, and it is, it's in the, it's just how we're wired too, because even when you talk about like highly sensitive people and being more <sighs> empathetic or, or more easily startled or all of these other things, it's just the wiring of the brain. So I think people that maybe aren't experiencing things on that level, they maybe just had different experiences that led to it or they have different things they're focused on there's so many factors it's hard to it's really hard to tell at this point why some of us are are maybe wired more uh for crippling empathy <laughs> so i'm interested in your take on something and i i have never brought this up to you so you've you have posted a number of times and we've talked about you are not your diagnosis yeah okay here's here's my thought on that uh, not my thought on that. So I have a sort of a question is, um, uh, so if I have, if I have a diagnosis that is some sort of a, a mental illness, mm -hmm. um, to what extent is it, um, a challenge or to what extent are is that phrase, you are not your diagnosis, to what extent is that suggesting that I don't identify it? Because identify with it, because we're talking about identity, yeah. right? And so personally, um, I've got a litany of things <laughs> that I identify with, yeah. right? That I actually, that helps me to understand who I am yeah. by saying, okay, this is my diagnosis, mm -hmm. right? So, um, I am depressed. I do have anxiety. Mm -hmm. I do have, you know, so I have this stack of things and, but that helps me to understand because I can sit there in the book and I can read mm -hmm. who I am, you know, and it's, it's very similar to me as in the same vein as like having my birth chart done or oh. reading my horoscope and things yeah. like that. Like I, it's just like, yeah, somebody understands me. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the DSM five describes me. Exactly. I, so, so then I really hear you. That's a really, that's a really tricky thing because it just, I think I say it coming from a place of trying to destigmatize. But I think for some people, I think of people that are on the autism spectrum, there's been a lot of cool like reclaiming that's been done in that community of people that are like, yeah, I'm autistic and that's great. And, and they're identifying with this diagnosis and they're using it to empower themselves. So it's kind of there, there are layers to it. We actually talked sure. about this in the same EMDR training. We were talking about client resistance to change. So EMDR therapy, I've talked about a lot, is really powerful. So I've mentioned that in a lot of VA trials and studies, they've found that people that have PTSD as their diagnosis, after a certain number of sessions, they don't meet criteria for PTSD anymore. So we, we kind of got into that. I mean, we didn't get anywhere with it because it's such a big topic, but some client resistance can be due to the fact that having the diagnosis and having a little bit of an identity around it can start to become safe. It's the same reason that people with eating disorders so not or it go. Yeah, so people with eating disorders or people with addictions <laughs> can often be really resistant to 
not identify with their diagnosis because then that means what else is left. Mm -hmm. So if somebody really identifies with their eating disorder or their whatever their addiction is, um, they can't conceive of what they would be without it. So it's it's like a constellation of, of different opinions. Um, because like I was saying earlier, I'm on camera, I don't care. I have OCD. I've had OCD since I was a kid. I didn't have a name for it until I was in my 20s, um, but it's also really well managed now, so I forget that I have it. So mm. when it wasn't well managed, I thought about it a lot and I identified with it really heavily. So I think it kind of goes back to that idea that our identity is constantly changing. So even though, yeah, I still have OCD, I forget that I do and I don't identify with it in the same way because I'm not seeing the world from that lens. So it, I feel like it can have positives and negatives. The positive in being able to look in the DSM and go, oh, I'm not alone. I meet 15 of this criteria, which is actually a really bad thing. Is it a diagnosis code? But, but um, at the same time, it can be it can be a negative thing. So it's like it's it's like... There are two sides of it. It can be really empowering and helpful to say, especially when I think of like the autism thing, like, yeah, I'm autistic. I'm not autistic. But um, like for, for people that are empowered by that to say that, like, yeah, I am not neurotypical and I don't want to be because I see these things as positives. So that's one side. But then there's also the other piece, too, that if you identify maybe like in the same way, thinking of somebody with an eating disorder that's afraid to let go of their eating disorder because if they're not eating disordered what's left yeah it's just it's so complicated i think that just is a whole other layer of identity and thinking about diagnosis or diagnoses um we talked about that a little bit the same training there was somebody that was talking about like a chronic pain issue and how it just kind of like shapes everything that they do in their entire life wait say that again um yeah it's the same thing as like static I think it Chris Hadfield says that space smells like burnt steak. <laughs> cool. We'll just have to believe him. <laughs> space. <laughs> smells like steak. Smells. For all you vegetarian astronauts. <laughs> I mean, some veggie burgers can be pretty realistic. Beyond Burger? Beyond Burgers. Sponsor us. Please. <laughs> just send me burgers and the sausages. Oh, God. The sausages. The bratwurst and the Italian sausages. I just like sausage. saying sausages. 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 The beyond sausages. All right. So are we going to talk about, can I talk about my people now? Wait, you were in the middle of a Oh, are, are you done yet? Okay. Sorry. Finish your point. Uh, so I was discussing the concept of chronic pain and how some someone was identifying heavily with their chronic pain. And we kind of dug in a little bit to well, what if that pain went away what would your life look like what would you be like mm -hmm. and then it, there was kind of this realis realization that one that could be a possibility and two it would change everything and then the identity would be different and that could be said of like any kind of mental illness so like if i were to heavily identify with you know somebody with ocd like i might act differently or i might do things differently, but I forget that I have it because <laughs> my meds work. <laughs> um, um, I actually work with, so my the computer side of my life, IT consultant, um, most of my clients work in pain management, mm. and that's actually something that they deal with, um, and they have um, yoga teachers that come in and work with 
their um, client or with their, what are those people called? Patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only are they using yoga, asana, meditation, pranayama to help with the management of pain, mm-hmm. um, but also in doing that, um, the process of kind of what you talked about, was that at the beginning of this episode or this last one? Talking about your gut and connection with your brain and all of that. And this is not. It was probably like two minutes ago. I don't even know. I don't know. Um, but the getting somebody to to experience a parasympathetic response, learning how to relax, yes. and feeling. So, for example, you were talking about like digestion. Yeah. And pain from anxiety and so forth. So when you learn how to relax, and then you. And I, and I experience this a lot with my Thai massage clients. Um, they'll apologize because their, their stomach, stomach is grows. rumbling. And I'm like, no, this is great because that I, means that your body's digesting. You're relaxing. I love that. When my stomach growls, I always want somebody to high-five me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did it, you guys. I calmed down. Yay. <laughs> that is what that sign, that's what that means. Yeah. It's really exciting. And so um, these pain management groups with the, with the yoga teachers, they're also helping these people to understand this is what it feels like to not have pain. Yeah, you have and to so practice you're just, it almost. Yeah, and so yeah. you're just slowly working on what it's like to not have that. Um, and I, um, one of my clients um, noticed, so a, the flip thing happened. So she actually noticed pain in her body mm-hmm. because for so long, so she's had pain in her body before, and in working with her, doing Thai massage and so forth, learning how to relax, mm. she all of a sudden experienced being relaxed and pain-free for a while. Mm-hmm. So then when she experienced pain again, she's like, oh my God, I noticed pain because she had experienced the lack of pain Yeah, and disconnecting from that. So it's a really fascinating thing how much we do identify with um, physical uh, things that you, I don't know, I guess, you know, People who say, oh, you know, I just, I just always have this pain. Right. You know, I have pain in my knees, um, which is true for me. You know, my knees almost always hurt. So it's weird for me when they don't hurt. Yeah. And it's almost like, well, who am I now? You know, or. Right. I can right. do these things now. And that's the tricky part is when we identify really strongly with, with one thing and we try to hold on to it, whether it's good or bad. It makes it, it makes the transition away from whatever that thing is more difficult and and at times it could even be painful. I mean, I think that's, yeah, going back to addictions, I think that's one of the biggest barriers is like, maybe, maybe you have a certain lifestyle because of the addiction. What what happens to your entire life if you get sober? When Aaron, so with smoking, so when Aaron went to stop smoking, he was very defensive about it. And what do you do one, with your hands well, in public or even in a more party? So. No, he said, he said, well, so then I'm just going to stop waking up in the morning, going to the bathroom and eating and doing anything because oh. every single thing was, I wake up, I have a cigarette. I go to the bathroom, I'm going to smoke on the toilet. I'm going to eat and then I'm going to have a cigarette. Yeah. So every single thing in his life was associated with smoking. Yeah. So it was literally a lifestyle change to break the habit of smoking. Yeah. So I guess it's just constantly in flux and we can't, we can't squish it down and hold it in one place because every moment that anything happens, identity will be changed. Yeah. But that's kind of like that. Yeah. If you, if you let yourself be liberated by it, I think it's okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> I liked, I Especially liked if you do something that's embarrassing. You can go, yeah. uh, two minutes from now, I'll be somebody else. Let's wait for the next moment, because this one <laughs> sucks. <laughs> and it, it is true. This too shall pass. Yeah. Right? Um, would you, would you, would you? Um, actually, if I was clever, I would sing um, the Georgia... The like do 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 Copyright infringement. Sweet Georgia Brown. Thank you. That's probably old enough to be safe. Yeah. So my Rebel of the Week or Rebels of the Week are actually the Harlem Globetrotters. I absolutely adore. So I don't know if people know this about me. I love basketball. I love the NBA. I will watch college basketball happily for my... 16th birthday, I was taken to see the Harlem Globetrotters downtown. Oh, effing loved it. I Stop adore basketball. So, story. yes, <laughs> so this is very personal. <laughs> and on Mental Health Day on October 10th, um, the Harlem Globetrotters released this. Um, they have their this uh, initiative called On Our Sleeves. And they partnered with the National Children's Hospital. And so I'm going to put up a picture on this. And so they have these um, uh, shooting sleeves that you wear on your arm mm -hmm. that is that they are selling. So I'll also have a link to their website. So they've got, um, they're doing a Pushing the Limits World Tour in 2020, which is why I feel it's good to even bring this up now so that we can promote it for next year. Um, and so they are... Um, helping to promote awareness of um, mental illness in children. So mm -hmm. one in five children in the United States are living with mental illness mm -hmm. is, this is what the Globetrotter president Howard Smith uh, said, we're humbled to support this important initiative along with our partners at Nationwide Children's Hospital and we're hopeful that our fans will want to do the same. So although I am terrible at basketball, I may get myself a sleeve. Um, and the reason for this is that um, the whole reason why they're doing a sleeve is that they're saying that um, children don't talk enough about what's going on inside of them. No, they don't have the um, words for a lot of yeah, it. Yeah, and so the idea is to wear your heart on your sleeve, to mm -hmm. wear it, um, to talk about it more. Yeah. And so, again, in the last episode, we talked about Will Wheaton and celebrities who are taking that platform to talk about mental health awareness mm -hmm. and all of that. And I just adore that the, the Harlem Globetrotters are doing that because children do love them and they do have yeah. that platform to getting to that base, their demographic, yeah. um, and, and talking about that. I can't even imagine, we talked about kind of the opposite side of that, of, of uh, Return to Oz. I can't imagine being the age that I was when I saw that and instead seeing something where they were talking about how normal it is to have anxiety and what you can do about it. Yeah. Like that would have changed my whole life. Yeah, well, I mean, and, I, and as a kid, I grew up Knowing that, so my dad always said, well, your mom is bipolar, so you may be bipolar too, so I'm going to watch you and all that. And so I was aware of mental illness yeah. as a kid. I hyper aware. But mom never talked about it. Uh, she was in denial. And so that's kind of how I was raised as well. Like, you just don't talk about it. Walk it off. Yeah. yeah. And, and so <laughs> it's, that, it's that dual thing of, well, if mom's not going to talk about it, I won't either. And... So, 
you know, I didn't talk about my own stuff. She didn't talk about her stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we had our own way of coping with things, which was probably not very healthy. <laughs> I guarantee it wasn't. Um, but anyway, so thank you to the Harlem Globetrotters for being um, our, for being amazing and helping Rebels. to support, to support uh, mental health awareness in children. Yes. Okay. So book of the week. Booka, booka, booka. Check them out. Um, so one of my running buddies uh, gave me this book and I'm going to be a big girl and not cry talking about this book. <laughs> Um, so Star Wars, I am a princess. Number one, um, as, uh, a rebel, literally Leia's a rebel. Mm -hmm. Um, general Leia Organa was a rebel. Mm -hmm. Um, not only is she actually a princess, now she's, she's a Disney princess as well now. Um, but also because of Carrie Fisher, and this is where I'm going to try not to cry. So... Mm -hmm. So they bring up like every aspect of her life and what it means to be a princess. And it starts out saying, oh. I am a princess. I lead others and keep them safe. And it goes through all of the stories and every aspect. It's got her mom, Amidala, um, and all of the things that she's done. They never mention that Vader's her dad. A princess must stand up to her enemies. And they're not like, even if he's your dad. <laughs> oh. Um, and I do like the fact that next to Jabba the Hutt, she is not wearing her Leia slave outfit. Yeah. She is, in fact, got, got clothes call. on. Good call, little golden book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I love this book. And I it talks it about... exists at all. And so, not only does it talk about, like, strength and all of that, but also peace and goodwill. And she makes new friends and allies wherever she goes. Um, they talk about her relationship with Han Solo and all of that, how she dresses up um, to as a bounty hunter to rescue him from Carbonite. And then... Uh, not crying. <laughs> and then... I'm not crying. Are you ready to be a hero? I'm not crying. Um, so anyway, I highly recommend this book. Adults, kids, it doesn't matter. It'll make you feel good. Yes, because... You can be a beautiful princess. You can be a strong princess. You can be a leader. Um, and, yeah, and she does all the things. And I just want to do a side reference to mm. also Women of the Galaxy. Oh, so you book. can be, so little girls are growing up to be women. Yeah. Um, so I also highly recommend Women of the Galaxy. And my favorite Woman of the Galaxy is Ahsoka Tano. Um, I love that book. This is a beautiful book. The artistry is great. Who is and, the artist? Does it say? Amy, um, Amy Radcliffe. Radcliffe. Yep. Yep. So, yes. So I guess two books, but the main one was this one. Yeah. And I love it. Yay! So there you go. Keep the rebellion alive. 